The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Thinking about that reality of God's children here as we're studying the Bible together. So, if you haven't already, let's open up together to Genesis 17. We've been studying together the book of Genesis and the narrative of Abram, who today we'll learn is now called Abraham in Genesis 17. We've been studying together the faith of our father, the life of Abraham. As you're going there and uh, grabbing your Bible and opening it to Genesis 17, uh, you may be aware that uh, in the last couple weeks there was some really important news uh, about uh, international denomination um, involving a, a meeting in St. Louis where they were taking a very important vote about the, the nature of marriage and it was very interesting to see the split on the matter uh, based off of the international delegation and the Western American delegation on where they stood on the issue of, of marriage and how marriage should be defined. And I, I bring that up not to bring up the issue itself, but rather a comment that was made by one of the ministers uh, here in America in that tradition um, who said, well, we know what the Bible says about that, but God, well, he's changed his mind since then. And uh, so what God has said in the Bible, he has since forsaken. And so God has changed his mind about that. And again, I bring that up not, not to necessarily touch on the issue itself, but rather that concept, that idea that God represents himself in the scriptures one way. And then the supposed concept that in reality he's somehow different or has a different mind than he represents himself in the scriptures to have. Now, when it comes to your life and mine, if that is true, then all the foundation that we stand on with our faith gets crumbled at our feet and we've got nothing left to hope for in terms of our confidence that God is true when he says to us, I love you, that his word is true when he says to us, your sins are forgiven. What we read about in the scriptures, God pledging himself to be our God and we his children, forgiven and loved. If that's not true, then all of our confidence is absolutely thrown to the wind. But the Bible stands as a sure and true witness that God is faithful to his word. And that God is faithful to his people. And Genesis 17 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, particularly in the story of Abraham, that outlines with a sure confidence that God is not going to forsake his people and he's not going to forsake his word and he's not going to go back on his promises, that for us as his people, we can count on him. Genesis 17 tells us about the God who keeps his covenant. And so we are looking in Genesis 17 and asking the question, how can we know for sure that God is true to his word? How can we know for sure that God will be there for us? How can we know for sure that when he says he is for us, he is not going to change his mind? The answer is in Genesis 17, as we see in many parts of the Bible, but especially here in this chapter. Now, just a quick word of context as we get to chapter 17. Uh, what we've been learning about in Abraham's life so far since chapter 12 is that Abraham was a man who was himself a pagan who did not know, believe in, or worship God at all. And God called him to go to a strange land and in that strange land to receive these promises of land, seed, and blessing. 
land, seed, and blessing, that God called Abram, and Abram went to Canaan, and there received God's glorious promises. But he has been in Canaan a long time, and last week when we were looking at chapter 16, we saw that Abram was really struggling with the timeline that God was fulfilling his promises in, and decided to take things into his own hands. That Abram gave into his wife Sarai's plans to take matters into their own hands. And when Abram was 86 years old, at the end of chapter 16, Ishmael was born to Abram by Hagar, the maidservant of Sarai. And this was a disruption to God's purposes because it was God's intention that the son would come from Abram and Sarai. And so at 86 years old, he's got himself in a mess. And now Genesis 17 comes after that big disaster of chapter 16 where Abram must certainly be asking himself the question, have I blown it? God said this and I struggled to receive it, struggled to believe it. He gave me all kinds of assurances that it was true and yet I still struggled to receive it and went down a path that really screwed things up for me and my family. What am I going to do? Genesis 17 encounters a person who is wondering if they have sinned themselves out of God's grace, forsaken their presence in God's family. Genesis 17 is going to answer the doubts and fears of the person who wonders those things, and it answers those questions firmly. Here in chapter 17, God's covenant with Abraham is going to be renewed and strengthened, and we will see that God, if he is anything, that God is a covenant keeper. God is a covenant keeper. Let's see this together in Genesis 17. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word and hear it together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We pray now, Lord, that as we have opened it together and bow our heads to ask your blessing and then read it together, we pray that by your spirit you would move among us, that you would give our minds illumination to understand the scriptures, that you would give our hearts power from your spirit to be transformed, and that through your word you might do a wonderful work among us. Lord, come and speak now in the power of your word and help us to listen in faith, we pray in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Genesis in chapter 17, the first eight verses of Genesis 17. This is the word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. 
and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And so let's continue in Genesis 17 here. We need to be sure of this fact that Genesis 17 and really the narratives of Abraham altogether is all about this idea of covenant. We've been talking about it for a number of weeks now. Covenant is the context here. In fact, in chapter 17, the word covenant is going to appear 13 different times. Covenant is the way we explain and understand our relationship with God. Covenant is the definition of what it means to have a relationship with God. And specifically here in the life of Abram, we've been learning about the God who gives to his people this promise called covenant that will be their assurance that this God is their God and that they are his people. Now we've been seeing this all the way back again from Genesis chapter 12. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram and made an initial promise to him that these things will be true if you will go and be faithful. And Abram went in chapter 12. In chapter 15, we saw in chapter 15 that that covenant was cut, that it was sealed, that it was formally made between Abram and God, that God pledged land, seed, and blessing to Abram and assured that these things would be true by cutting that covenant. Remember that bloody chapter in chapter 15. And now in chapter 17, that covenant that was promised in 12, made in 15, is sealed in 17. And so if you want another metaphor, it would be similar to the fact of uh, when someone goes about getting married, they get engaged and they wed and maybe later on they reaffirm their vows. And if you wanted to lay that template over chapters 12, 15, and 17, in chapter 12, God engages himself to Abraham in the sense of, I promise you that this will be true one day. And in chapter 15, he, if you like to continue the metaphor, gives Abram the ring, the wedding ring, to say this is true, this is sealed, this is a reality. We have formally entered into this covenant. We are joined together. And in chapter 17 now, the promise that was made in 12, sealed in 15, is further confirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed in 17 in a very powerful way. And so uh, if that's helpful to think of it like that, God is extending himself to Abram by way of a promise, and he wants Abram to lay hold of that with confidence and with assurance. And Abram is going to need that. And you and I need that as well because it is oftentimes in our lowest moments when we feel that we have, like Abram perhaps, sinned ourselves out of God's grace, that he will surely not forgive me this time, we need something to lay hold of to remember that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, that there is more forgiveness in Christ than sin in us, that we will not be forsaken by the God who has told us, you are my people. We need that confidence. 
And Abram needs it as well. So we want to see, first of all, in chapter 17, in the first three verses, that God's covenant uh, is something that Abram needs to really remember, and it is a covenant that is itself full of grace. God's covenant is full of grace, and Abram needs to remember that. Now, look physically look at your Bible here for a second, at the transition between chapter 16 and 17, because the text jumps from one chapter to the other, of course, but there is a massive gap here. At the end of chapter 16, Abram is 86 years old, and then in the beginning of chapter 17, he's 99. And so, therefore, the, those centimeters of blank space in your Bible represent 13 years. So we need to remember that as we're thinking about how Abram is dealing with his reality and dealing with his life here. We don't know anything about those 13 years. What we know from the end of chapter 16, though, is that he has uh, conceived uh, Ishmael with Hagar, and he has been rebuked for that because that is not the way God has intended the covenant promises to go. He will go to his own seed through Sarai uh, from Abram, and this is not the way it is to go. And so that gap of intermittent time where Ishmael is growing up and uh, Abram's household is in real disorder, we don't have any details about that. But the one thing that we can know for certain about those 13 years is that if Abram was doubting God, God is always faithful to his covenant promises. That's the one thing that we can say for sure. That if Abram has been waxing and waning and struggling and riding that roller coaster of faith up and down peaks and valleys, struggles and successes, God has remained faithful to his promise to Abram. And the amazing thing about that is that 13 years earlier in chapter 16, when Abram was responsible for making the absolute mess of his household, we can probably assume that chapter 17 comes and Abram is wondering... Is there still hope for me? Uh, is there still hope for my family? Is there still hope for God's promises? Will God's word be proven true? Or have I forsaken these things? Does God still have room in his family for a sinner like me? And that's important because the question should also be asked by every single one of us. Is there hope for a sinner like me? Is there hope for a sinner like you? And the answer to those questions is found right away in verse 1. When after that gap of time, Abram, now 99 years old, verse 1 says that God appears to Abram and says to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. The answer to the question, is there still hope for a sinner like Abram, is found in God's covenant and the disclosure of God's covenant name. And it is a covenant itself that is full of grace. Here's the point right away in Genesis 17, that God's covenant is not broken by my sin. God's covenant is not broken by your sin or Abram's sin because God's covenant is a covenant of grace. Again, remember, remember the story. God has pledged himself to Abram. In chapter 15, God said to Abram, Abram, I promise to death that I would rather cease to exist than fail in my promises to you. The infinite, eternal God says to Abram, I would rather myself die than fail you. That's what Genesis 15 was all about. 
That means that your sin, Abram, your failure, Abram, will not drive me away. Because Abram is in a covenant with God, a gracious covenant. And when God comes to him in verse 1 and says to him, I am God Almighty. You've got a footnote there in your Bible and it translates it for you. In Hebrew, it's the word El Shaddai. I am the God of power. I am the Almighty God. I am the God who is stronger than your sin and failure. I am the God of grace. I am the God of power. I am El Shaddai. And in this gracious covenant with the Almighty God, Abram is held by the bonds of power, of grace. And we should notice this, that God will not forsake Abram, but still comes after him, still in verse 1. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I am the God of power. And now, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. The God of the covenant is the God of the covenant of grace. And God's covenant of grace is so gracious and so powerful and so wonderful that it will not leave us in our sins, but it will transform us out of our sins. God enters into Abram's sin and enters into Abram's mess and says to him, I am the God of power and you shall, verse 1, walk before me and be blameless because this covenant with God, this relationship with God comes with responsibilities. It comes with obligations. It comes with things that we must do in order to be in this covenant with God. Now notice this. When God says, walk before me and be blameless, you say, what, is that, what does that mean, right? Is Abram blameless? The answer, of course, is no. Walk before me and be blameless. This means that Abram is to live underneath the conscious gaze of El Shaddai, the conscious gaze that God watches over him, to walk before God in the knowledge that God watches over him. That is, he is to walk, he is to live in such a way that is pleasing to God, to live his life in a way that honors God, so that he can have the confidence that as his father looks upon him, he is pleased with what he sees and the holiness of his life, that he is to be blameless in the sense of not going back on his relationship with God. When God says, walk before me and be blameless, Abram, it doesn't mean, Abram, be perfect. It doesn't mean, Abram, be sinless. It means, Abram, don't be double-minded. Don't be hypocritical. Don't say you're in a relationship with me one day and then the next day run away from me. But walk before me and be blameless. And so therefore, to walk before God is to live in faith. And to receive from God the blessings of the covenant and live in them. And here immediately is an application for us, isn't it? That you and I cannot be in a covenant with God, a relationship with God, and not walk before God. We cannot be in a covenant with God and think that it won't make a difference in our lives. Now here's a quick significance here for this. It's scandalous and really shameful to think that people want to have God as their God so long as he gives them what they want and one day when they die, take them where they want to go. They want God to do those things. They want a relationship with God insofar as he gives them what they want and takes them where they want to go, but maybe day by day and week by week, 
their relationship with God matters not to them. Or they don't want to be with God's people on the Lord's day or whatever the case might be. That if we are in a covenant relationship with God, it is a covenant that must change us. Which is why God tells Abram that in this relationship you must walk before me and be blameless and not turn from me. Meaning God will either be your God completely or he will not. That you will either be in a covenant relationship with God and have him as your God and you as his people or not. And what the book of Genesis is teaching us here in the big picture so far through 17 chapters is that you and I cannot afford to take this idea for granted. Because I think far too many people do take this concept for granted. Well, of course God, of course God would do this. Of course God would love me. Of course God would be gracious to me. Actually, we can't take any of those things for granted. Now, think back. We have to walk backwards in the story of Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, a close relationship with God was the normal state, right? It made sense. Adam and Eve dwelled in sinless fellowship with God. But after the fall, because of sin, the desire that we have to control our own life and rule over our own lives and our own little kingdoms means that we have set ourselves opposed to God and God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. And if you remember at the end of chapter 3, set cherubim at the gates with flaming swords to say, you can't come back in here. I have sent you out east of Eden away from me and dispelled you because of your sin. No one can break their way back into the garden. Fellowship with God is not something that can be taken for granted. It has been lost. And the story of humanity is a story of people who cannot be accepted by God on their own merits. Just like Cain cannot be accepted by God on his own merits, by his own terms, on his own sacrifices. The builders of the Tower of Babel thought they would climb up to heaven and get to God on their own terms. And the story of humanity is a story of a people who insist that they will get to God on their own terms. I'm going to live my decent life. I'm going to be nice to most people most of the time. Make sure my good outweighs my bad. And then at the end of the day, God will accept me because he has to, because he's obligated to. And this is the predominant way that people think about God. And the Bible is saying it doesn't work that way. That if there is going to be any relationship between God and sinful humanity, it will not be we who climb and make a way to him, but rather he who graciously comes to us. And that concept of his gracious coming to us is exactly what the word covenant is all about. Covenant is the way in which he comes down to us. And Abram knows this. Do you see him in verse 3? Falling on his face. Falling on his face in, in this humble posture of reception Lord, I've sinned, and Lord, I've been unworthy, and Lord, you're faithful to me, and I am so thankful. He falls on his face. This is the root and foundation of the gospel message. Not that we save ourselves, but that God, because he is gracious, saves sinners, and that saving relationship that we enter into is called covenant, the covenant of grace. And Abram needs to know that, and you and I need to know that too. 
And this covenant of grace is not only full of grace, it is also, secondly, full of assurance. We see this in verses 4 through 8, that God's gracious covenant is also a covenant of assurance, that God's covenant is full of assurance. What you see in the rest of this chapter is the repetition and the specification of God's covenant promises. That as he has told Abram in the past, he's going to say again, Abram, this is still true. I haven't gone back on my word to you. I haven't gone back on my promises. Here in verses 4 through 8, we find God reviving Abram's faith while setting in front of him the promises that he's made. And God does the same thing to us too. He revives our faith by setting before us his word of promise. And the promises here are reiterated and they're re-emphasized and expanded. Now again, remember, I think you said it every single week and multiple times per week, the content of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And he rehearses it to him again. Notice it in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. That God, by sovereign decree, changes Abram's name in anticipation of the fact that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. The name Abram meant exalted father. And consider perhaps maybe the embarrassment and the reproach that Abram had all those years. People coming to visit him and stopping by his tent, learning his name, and then saying, wow, you must have lots of children. And he has none, but then only one conceived in sin. I'm going to change your name from exalted father to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And you will be the father of many nations. Do you remember in chapter 15, when he took him outside and said, lift up your eyes and look at the stars and count them if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And here he affirms again, Abram, that this promise of seed, children, posterity, that you will be the father of a multitude of nations and you will be, verse 6, exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into not just one nation but plural, nations, and you will be a royal nation and kings shall come from you. Abram, I've promised you seed, and it will be as the stars of the sky, the dust of the earth, the sand of the shores, because you will be the father of a multitude of nations, exceedingly fruitful, just as I said you would be. So there is the reaffirmation of the promise of seed, but also secondly, see in verse 7, there is the reaffirmation of this promise of blessing. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Meaning, Abram, I have promised to bless you, but I've also promised to bless all those who are within your home and in your house. And in the grand scheme of what this is saying, God is saying, I will be God to you, Abraham, and your children, and all those stars in the sky, all that dust of the earth and sand on the shores, I will be their God as well. And I will make this same promise to them that just as I have blessed you, Abram, I will bless them. And we understand what that is saying in the greater scope. We'll return to this in just a moment. But here God is saying, Abram, I've promised to bless you. And that promise will be a multi-generational eternal blessing. 
the promise of seed, the promise of blessing. And the third one is, of course, the promise of the land. Look at verse 8. He says again, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the land for the future generations. And we cannot say enough about the significance of what God is saying to Abram here. That these aspects of the Abrahamic covenant and what God is doing when he promises Abram again land, seed, and blessing is ultimately say to him, Abram, is it enough for you now to learn to trust me? Because when God makes all these promises to him, he is not just pledging these things, but he is ultimately promising himself. Verse 8, the greatest blessing of the covenant is God himself. I will be your God. I will be their God. To Abram and the children of Abram, I will be their God. Now, it's 2019, and you don't live in the ancient Near East. And even if you're into ancestry, it will take you a long time to trace yourself back to Abram. And so you should ask yourself the question, you know, what? why is this so significant? Why does this matter so much for understanding our lives, how I relate to God and, and how this all fits? Well, the New Testament explains all these things. The New Testament gives us the, the bigger picture of why we're spending so much time in studying Genesis together, why we want to understand Abram in such detail, now Abraham. What I want us to do, I just want to go through a few places and expand these things to, to bring this into the, the New Covenant, to bring this into the New Testament and help us to understand why the story of Abram is so essential for our lives as Christian believers because God's covenant with Abraham is ultimately all about Jesus Christ. What God is doing in the life of Abraham is ultimately all about Jesus Christ. And so these promises in this covenant, land, seed, and blessing, have an incredible significance for life in the New Testament, for life in 2019. And I just want to look at them one at a time. You can follow along if you like or uh, just listen. But first in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, God explains, the Apostle Paul explains, what was the point of God promising to Abram seed and inheritance and posterity. What was the point of all that? Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 gives us this understanding because when we think of God's promise to Abram of having seed, we immediately think of his biological lineage, Isaac, and then Jacob. And in one sense, that's correct. But when the Apostle Paul reads Genesis chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul reads Genesis chapter 15 and chapter 12, he understands that there is more by way of divine inspiration, that God, when he made the promise to Abram, was looking even further into the future. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Galatians 3, 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul explains here that all of the promises that God made to Abraham and to his seed are ultimately all about 
Jesus. That the promise of offspring was ultimately the promise of one who would come from Abraham's line, who would be the true seed of Abraham, the one born of woman to crush the head of the serpent. That when God made a promise to Abram of a future offspring, he was ultimately looking forward to Jesus. And Paul says exactly that in Galatians 3.16, that the promise of seed is all about Christ coming from the lineage of Abraham. That's what the point of the seed promise was. What about the the blessing promise? You want to turn left to the book of Romans and Romans chapter 4 to understand this because, again, this narrative of Abram is essential for understanding the entire storyline of the Bible. And Paul continues to explain these things in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, he explains the reality of the blessing promise and the idea of blessing the nations. Because when God promised to Abraham that through you the nations of the earth shall be blessed, he wasn't just forming one nation of Israel, he was creating a plan to bless all the nations of the earth. In Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 14, it says, For it is the adherents of the law who are the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul is here explaining that Abram rested in faith with this reality that a future blessing would come to all the nations, which include Jew and Gentile. End of verse 16, Romans 4, 16, that Abram is the father of us all. That you don't have to be Jewish to be a child of Abraham. Jew and Gentile are the children of Abraham. All those who believe. Seed and blessing and look at Romans chapter 4 verse 13 and you have an explanation of, you know, what was the whole point of the whole land? What was the point of the land promise when God told Abram, I will give you this land? Paul explains that in Romans chapter 4 verse 13. It says, for the promise to Abram and to his offspring was that he would be the heir of the world. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That Paul understands that when God promised to Abram that he would be given this land, that that land is the area of the promised land, the the area of Judea and Jerusalem and all these places, and that Abram would receive this as an inheritance. And Paul explains that that promise is expanded when Christ comes to include the land, not just of this particular geographic tract, but the land is also expanded into all the world. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth where the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would come to bless all the nations of the earth in a new earth land seed blessing 
Now, I recognize that that requires some big picture scanning of the Bible to grasp that. But the story of the covenant of Abraham is the story of Jesus Christ and his people who will be gathered together, those who believe. Imagine Abram walking back to his tent with a new name, Abraham, peering up at the skies and thinking about the stars. Can you imagine that Abraham would have ever imagined a day that Revelation chapter 7 describes for us? When people from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ singing his praises. Revelation 7, 9, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The multitude of nations that get gathered into the praise of Jesus Christ is a reality because of what God has promised to Abraham. It has always been God's purpose to bring about this salvation through these promises as Jesus himself explains in John chapter 8 that even before Abraham Jesus Christ is the reality before Abraham was I am the story of Abraham is the unfolding story of Jesus Christ and all of the scriptures point towards this and here's one one last put in your pocket and take home thought here I'm landing the plane. <laughs> when in Genesis chapter 7, 17, God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It is the simplest understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And if you can think about it from time to time, we do that here. When we are called to worship and God calls out and says, where are my people? And they gather together and say, here we are. We are your people. We will lift our voice in praise to your name. We will hear and sit under your word. We will go out and serve you. And in our call to worship, sometimes we do this, don't we? This is the word of God for the people of God. And they say, he is our God. And we are his people. And that is true because of the story of Abraham. That we should locate ourselves in this great story because it is the ultimate story of God's salvation. So may we know it and treasure it and live in the midst of it. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.